Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, where in Matthew chapter 6 we have the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we've been working on these uh, Lord's Supper Sundays through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we come to Lord's Day 46, which you um, should have in your bulletin. I'm not sure they all got, um, the insert got put in there, but there is a handout that has Lord's Day 46 on it, and I want to read this for us. Uh, This is uh, the Heidelberg Catechism explaining the meaning of the address that we find in scripture. So in Matthew 6, verse 9, it says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And our focus this morning will be on those words, our father in heaven. Heidelberg Catechism asks in question answer 120, why did Christ command us to call God our father? And the answer is to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father, and that just as parents do not refuse us the things of this life, even less will God our Father refuse to give us what we ask in faith. Why the words in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly, and to expect everything needed for body and soul from God's almighty power. So prayer is very obviously an important part of the Christian life. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we are told to pray continually or without ceasing. We have only to look at the life of the Apostle Paul to see a man of God whose life was marked by prayer. To the church in Ephesus, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the church in Rome, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And such examples could be listed. Clearly, we are to pray often as a regular part of life as a believer, but there is also the matter of how to pray. And the Lord saw prayer as of of, of such importance that he not only used parables to teach us about prayer, but he also here in the Sermon on the Mount gave a large portion Uh, to the subject of prayer. He included the Lord's Prayer, a part of which we will consider this morning. There's also instruction about prayer in the context leading up to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 6, um, Jesus says in verse 5 that when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And uh, they are hypocrites because they appear to be these pious people of prayer, but are in fact merely going through the motions of prayer in order to be seen by others. And the Lord says in response to such hypocrisy that instead of praying out in the open in order to show off, he says you should go into your room, you should shut the door, you should pray to your Father who is in secret. And Jesus also says in the context of the Lord's Prayer, In verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Um, And here is an area in which we especially fail. Uh, We have a particular desire that we want God to fulfill, and we treat prayer as a tool to get what we want. We figure that if we pray just hard enough and long enough that God will answer our prayer. 
But Christ reminds us that our Father already knows what we need before we ask him. He doesn't grant us our needs because we have nagged him to death and have finally made him aware of what our needs are. Uh, That's not how it works. And so there are these ways that prayer can be misused. And so it's worth pondering what is biblical prayer. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Prayer is described in scripture as supplication because in praying it is appropriate to ask God for the things we need. It's a crying to God for help and deliverance. It's a lifting up of one's soul to God. It's a calling upon the name of the Lord, sometimes described as seeking his face. Uh, It's a bowing toward his holy place, especially in the context of the Old Testament when they would pray toward the temple. It's a drawing near unto him. It's a pouring out of one's heart before him and even a thirsting and panting of the soul after him. It's especially clear from Scripture that prayer is a form of worship. And as we begin to understand what prayer is, the question begins to form, how does it possibly fit that we would treat it as something mechanical and routine and as a way to get what we want? Nevertheless, it happens that people use prayer as a tool for their own glory rather than for God's glory. It's because we do not always pray in the correct way that Jesus tells us in verse 9, pray then like this. In other words, because you and I tend to pray in a wrong way, Jesus wants to teach us the proper way to pray. And this is why the Lord gives us this prayer recorded in verses 9 through 13 of Matthew 6. This is here the Lord instructing us. He's telling us what kind of prayer pleases him. And it's called the Lord's Prayer, not because this was the only prayer that the Lord himself prayed, but because he, as our Lord, gave this prayer to us to teach us, to teach us the manner, the method, the, the matters of proper prayer. It would, be to think, it would be a mistake to think that this is the only prayer that we are ever to pray. Um, even this morning, we We did pray it as a prayer, and we do that occasionally, but mostly it is a model to guide us in our prayers. Um, This is clear from how the Lord introduces it. He says, pray then like this. And the idea is that this is how to pray. This is why the Shorter Catechism tells us that the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And if we look at this prayer in very general terms, the first thing that strikes us is how brief it is. Um, Jesus is actually applying what he has just taught about not heaping up empty phrases. The entire prayer can be spoken in 30 seconds or less. And yet this prayer is not in any way lacking in content. Every appropriate matter of prayer is included here, at least by implication. The prayer is typically divided into three main parts, the address or introduction, the petitions, and then the close or doxology. And of the petitions, the first three are concerned with God and his cause in the world, 
while the second group, the last four petitions, have reference to our needs. Again, there's not a single aspect, there's not a single uh, part of prayer that is not included here. Even these opening words that we, will, uh, that we are considering here this morning are not an empty phrase. The address tells us to whom we are praying and what we need to be thinking about as we pray. And if we understand this address, we will begin our prayers with the right frame of mind that will then allow us to to pray the remaining petitions in a proper way, in a way that glorifies God. It should be apparent that to call upon our Father in heaven is to call upon God. But proper prayer is not addressed to any and every God that man's religions encompass. Uh, Proper prayer is addressed to the true God who has revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The God we must address is the God that can be known only through Jesus Christ, the God that Jesus himself knew intimately as his own father. Jesus said during his earthly ministry, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He himself prayed to God, his Father, praying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Peter, in his first epistle, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The true God addressed in prayer is our Father, the the, the Father of Jesus, that in some sense is also our Father. If a person does not pray to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, he does not pray to the true God. Which is why the Bible teaches that the Lord does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you from from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. The only prayer that the Lord hears from the lips of the unbeliever is the prayer of repentance. Scripture is clear. We must address the God who is our Father through Jesus Christ. So how is God our Father? What does it mean to address him as Father? Many in the church world today will say that God is the father of all men. They will accordingly speak of all people as brothers and sisters. They point out that all people have been created in the image of God, which is true, but they go wrong when they say that God is not going to destroy his image. He is not going to cast anyone into hell. They insist that God loves everyone of his creatures in a saving way. In other words, those who refer to God as the father of all human beings tend to be universalists, believing that Jesus came to this earth in order to save all sinners through his death on the cross. The logical application of believing that every human being is is a child of God is to say that the Lord's Prayer can be rightly taken on the lips of anyone, which is perhaps why the Lord's Prayer is the preferred prayer used in public gatherings of mixed religions. But this idea that God is the father of every human being is not at all what is meant by this address, our father. It's true that he is the creator of all men and that all of us, because we originated from Adam, are blood related. 
But those that hold to the heresy of the universal fatherhood of God do not believe in the fall of man. They do not believe that man sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression. They do not believe that man has lost the image of God in a spiritual sense. Yes, after the fall, man remains a moral, rational creature. But spiritually speaking, we through the sin of Adam lost a true knowledge of God, righteousness and holiness, which is what the image of God consists of spiritually speaking. We became by nature children of wrath. We became children of the devil as those who bear the image of the devil, again, spiritually speaking. Jesus, on more, on more than one occasion, told the Jews that they were a brood of vipers, that they were of their father, the devil. The Lord said Satan was their father. And so it was also with us before loving Christ, before trusting Christ, we were under the dominion of the devil and like him in our character. We listened to him. We, we did what he told us to do, which is actually the condition of all of those who are not reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, if a sinner turns to Christ in true faith, repenting of his sins and seeing his hope of salvation in Christ alone, there is a profound change that occurs in our relationship with God where God becomes our father. What an amazing thing that the God of heaven and earth would allow and even command sinners to address him as father. It should be understood clearly that we can know God as our father only because he is first the father of Jesus Christ. It is important to remember that we are not sons of God in the same sense that Christ is. Christ, as to his person, is the only begotten son of God. He is the Son of God within the life of the triune God, which means that as the second person of the Trinity, he derives his life, his existence from the first person known as the Father. This is an eternal generation that belongs to the very essence of who God is. That Jesus, as the Son of God, is eternally generated from the Father is why he is not a created being with a beginning in time. Yes, Jesus, the Son, became incarnate in time, but as to his person, as the Son, he is one of the persons of the eternal God. And of course, we're not children in that sense. Nevertheless, being united to Christ by faith, we share intimately in that relationship between Jesus, the Son, and the Father. Notice the words of John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 It says, yet to all who received him, that is, who received the word, who received the Son, Jesus, the Son incarnate, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. We are adopted into the family of God when we are born from above by the Spirit in regeneration. And so we are, by faith, united to Christ in such a way as to become members of his own body. And in this union with Christ, we share in the relationship that Christ has with his Father. So that as brothers of Christ, we are sons of God. John 20, verse 17, Jesus said, says there, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Christ specifically prayed that we would share in the relationship that he has with the Father when he said, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Let's consider the implications then of what it means to address God as our Father. This means that in Christ, through faith, we have been made children of God. Satan is no longer our spiritual father, but God is, which means that you and I now bear a spiritual likeness to God. In God saving us and bringing us into his family, we are, first of all, justified in Christ. Through faith in Christ, that that God works in us, that, that faith which is a gift of God, through that God declares us to be perfectly righteous in his sight by putting Christ's righteousness to our account. This is what happens um, uh, uh, um, this is what this is what what opens the door to us being received then into the into the fellowship of our holy God and this this work of salvation then continues as as we are more and more conformed into the image of Christ through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, and that image of God consisting of true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness is restored in us so that in a creaturely measure we resemble Christ and we reflect his virtues. As those who have this spiritual likeness to God in Christ, there's a communion of life, communion of of love between God and us. We are in a relationship with him like that between a loving father and his child so that we know him intimately and we trust him to take care of us. We trust him to give us every good thing. And it's only appropriate that as a child of our Heavenly Father that we delight in knowing him and in response seek to walk in obedience before him. And the result of this spiritual adoption where God becomes our Father is that we have a right to all of the privileges of the sons of God. As those who have had his name put upon us, we have the right to dwell in his house forever. We will be forever with Christ, God's Son. For as children of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. And uh, we have the hope of the eternal inheritance that he has earned for us. So what a profound matter it is for us to address God as Father. Um, As you approach him in prayer... Think of it. He wants you to think of him as your father. He wants you to think of prayer as a drawing near unto him as a father who loves you, who has affection for you. He wants you to know how he feels about you in order that you would pray to him with the right spiritual attitude. In other words, knowing God as your father should affect how you pray. And God wants you to address him as father so that you would begin your prayer with a childlike reverence for and confidence in God. Um, This is a different translation, but I want to read once again question and answer 120. It says, why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our father? And the answer is that immediately in the very beginning of prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God or trust in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. 
As you pray, you are to have the same reverence for God that a young child has for his parents. Young, parent, young children, they love their parents. They want to please their parents. They, and so to address God as Father is meant to encourage reverence for God. And then the other main reason given by the Catechism for why God wants us to pray, our Father, is to create in you confidence or trust as you draw near to him, knowing that as your Father, he's not going to reject you. You should be confident. You should be trusting in his love, confident that as your father, he is always going to give you what you need. Normally, earthly children have confidence that their parents are, are going to take care of them, that they're going to protect them, that they're going to provide all they need. And we have every reason to have such confidence in our heavenly father. Jesus reminds us, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And the point is that the Lord wants us to approach him not with a fear of rejection, but in the confident assurance that he can and that he will, out of love, give us all of the things that we need, all of the things that are best for us. So in sum, you must come before God in prayer like a little child approaching a loving parent, Humble and reverent, but also with a spirit of confidence born out of knowing that you have every right as one of God's children to ask him for what you need and to expect a loving response. It should be evident from the fact that you are to address God as Father, that the Lord wants you to feel comfortable in approaching him. He wants you to know the intimacy of your relationship with him in Christ he doesn't want you to be so overwhelmed by his glory and infinite majesty so as to cringe before him. He wants you to think of a warm relationship like that of a father who is close to his children. It's wrong to think of God as unreachable, as unapproachable, as unwilling to condescend to us. And yet this does not mean that God has now suddenly become your equal. And that you can address him as if he were your next door neighbor. God remains infinitely above us. You must never forget that you are but creatures and that God is in heaven. Which is why the next part of the address reads, our father in heaven. There is, you see this constant need for balance and understanding that while God is near, he is also in another sense far. And we must never forget the reverence. That is his due. That God is in heaven doesn't mean that he is confined to heaven. Uh, 1 Kings 8.27 tells us, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. God is infinite in his omnipresence. He is present everywhere in his creation, and yet at the same time he is said to be in heaven to remind us of several things. First, that God is spiritual. He has not a body like men. It's wrong to picture God in some kind of a physical way. We so often try to bring God down to our level and forget that he is a spirit who dwells in heaven in unapproachable light. We have a tendency to bring God down to earth from his throne of glory, but God is a God of infinite majesty who dwells in heaven over all things. Psalm 8, 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our God is in heaven. He is a God of majesty. And that God is in heaven means that he has the power to do all of his holy will in all of the universe that he has created. Psalm 115.3 puts it this way, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And you and I need to be reminded of this as we approach God in prayer. You can be sure that as God is your Father in heaven, he has almighty power. Uh, You can be sure that he is able to acquire for you all things necessary for soul and body. Because your God is in heaven, he can hear and he can grant the requests of all of the prayers of his people whenever and wherever they are offered in this created world. And that your Father is in heaven is humbling because it reminds us that God is transcendent, that he is infinite in majesty, and thus And let us not forget, he does condescend. He condescends to us in letting us pray to him. You could never reach up to God without him first reaching down to you by sending his son from heaven. It is grace for God to let you as a mere creature speak to him. Never forget, it is grace that makes prayer possible. Again, We need to keep a balance in these things. God is warm, he is inviting, and he is near. But never abuse that nearness to think that God can be approached without due consideration of his glory and majesty. And true God-honoring prayer is always characterized by humility and even awe as we draw near in confidence. Our Father God is in heaven. And so you must pray, our Father in heaven. And if you pray this prayer, if you pray this prayer to God as your caring Father, and yet as the infinite God in heaven, then you will approach prayer with the right perspective. This perspective will naturally affect the content of your prayers. Gone will be those self-centered prayers that view God as existing to meet your every desire. Absent will be thoughtless prayers where you ask for just anything that comes into your minds. You will no longer come to God attempting to inform him of how he can make your life better while having no concern for his glory and kingdom and will. But instead, you will approach him with the very petitions that we find here in the Lord's Prayer. And so you must recognize that proper prayer begins with a proper address proper address to God as your Father in heaven, because proper prayer is born out of a proper understanding of your relationship with God. You have a relationship with God as your Father in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we address you as our Father, thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes this even possible that we could have such fellowship with you, the holy God of heaven and earth. As sinners, we would have no hope of ever addressing you with any uh, hope of, of, of a loving and gracious response. But Father, we thank you that in Christ, because of what Christ has done, because he has taken away that wall of separation due to sin, that we can approach you.
And uh, Father, we thank you that we can know you as a loving God, as a caring God, as one who will meet our every need, who cares for us like a caring parent, uh, cares for his child. Um, Father, we we thank you. Um, We pray that we would keep always in mind this balance between recognizing your nearness as well as how infinite in majesty you are. May we always approach you humbly and yet recognizing that you want us to call upon you, that you want to hear from us, and that you have even paved the way that we might do this through sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks. We we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.